Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas that they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Christina Cucarellis and Ashley Flanagan, who, among other affiliations and roles, are colleagues at the National Institute for Aging at Toronto Metropolitan University. They're also, I'm pleased to announce, the winners of the Hub's Hunter Prize for Public Policy for their essay contribution entitled, Bringing Long-Term Care Home. I'm grateful to speak with them about the essay, including the benefits of reconceptualizing our long-term care model from facilities to home-based care. Before our conversation kicks off, however, listeners will hear Derek Hunter from the Hunter Family Foundation, which has generously supported the Hunter Prize for Public Policy, inform Christina and Ashley that their submission is the winner of this year's prize. Before we get started with the podcast, I'm just gonna turn it over to, to Derek, if that's okay. I guess what I, what I would say is that, you know, I, I was involved at the very outset with the concocting the idea behind the hub and our goal is to i think i think of it as raising the level of discourse across this country when it comes to public policy discussions and doing it in a respectful and nonpartisan but intelligent manner and i think that uh, in the two and a half years i've been really pleased with the progress that that we've made and, and the quality of the uh the writers and and the material that we've been able to produce in podcast form and and with the, the news emails and you know, the decision to create the Hunter Prize really spun out of our, I think, positive experience for the first couple of years of the Hub to try and take things to another level. You know, the idea came about, I guess, through a conversation that Sean, myself, and Rudyard had about, well, what do we do to create more engagement to really produce some tangible ideas that are actionable, that can really go to uh, solving, as, as Sean describes them, as wicked problems in, in Canada. I remember sitting down with these guys saying, well, what's our topic going to be this year? And there was plenty <laughs> to choose from. I mean, you could talk about housing, you could talk about all sorts of things, but the, the challenges in, in our, in our uh, healthcare system are, are very broad and demand attention. So I'd like to thank both of you for participating. Uh, we were really gratified by the response that we got in terms of the sheer volume of uh, submissions we received was far beyond you know, what my expectations were. I guess we really didn't know what to expect because it was the first time. Taylor's nodding. He's the poor guy who had to read them all, right? <laughs> so, you know, we kind of set him up for for a lot of uh, a lot of material to pour through and, and the judges as well. But I want to thank you both for participating. And I think it's been a really fascinating experience. I hope that we can use it to elevate the amount of discussion and to take some of the really uh, high high quality ideas and actually 
uh, you know, push forward to, to implementing some solutions in this country. So thank you again. I guess at, at this point, Ashley and Christina, we want to let you know that based on the evaluation of the judges, your submission is the winning paper for the inaugural Hunter Prize for Public Policy. So congratulations to both of you. Well done. And, and I'd be remiss if I didn't thank the Hunter Family Foundation for being open to, as Derek says at the outset, somewhat unclear idea around trying to engage new and different voices to confront the wicked problems facing the country. And I, I think your paper exemplifies what we were hoping to achieve with this project. So congratulations to both of you. Yeah, congratulations. Oh, my goodness. Thank you so much. Whew. Was not expecting that on this call. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> thank you. Um, and let me just, uh, you know, say again, uh, thanks to both of you for participating. Congratulations. You know, I'm not sure if you know, but I mean, this was this was a very widely uh, contested uh, prize. Uh, the the uh, There was a large number of submissions. And so to sort of make your way to the top is really quite a quite an achievement. So I, I'm, I'm delighted that, that you're here and and, uh, and thank you for participating. But I think you should be quite, quite proud of this, of this achievement as well. So well done. Thank you so much. Absolutely super proud of, of the work that we we put out. And also a shout out to our, our mentor, Dr. Sinha, who has uh, really helped guide this work as well. So we are uh, without words at the moment. <laughs> but, but very exciting. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Yeah. Uh, congratulations again. We're really, really grateful for your submission. And I would just say, echoing Derek's observation, that although there was a, a number of submissions on a range of topics from people of different backgrounds, which was really our ambition, I'm pleased to report that, that there was a strong consensus amongst the judges that yours was the best submission of the group. So this didn't involve a hung jury or long deliberations. Split decision. Was, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think a really quite a strong consensus, which again, speaks to the strength of your analysis and the quality of your work. So well, well done. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Nice. Christine and Ashley, thank you for joining us at Hub Dialogues. Thank you for having us. Yeah, pleasure to be here. Let's start with a question about need. Listeners will, of course, be familiar with aging demographics and the notion that they will increase overall demand on provincial healthcare systems. Talk specifically about long-term care. What have the conference board and others projected in terms of rising demand for long-term care capacity and resources? Yeah, so thanks for the question, John. I'll just take a step back just in case some of our listeners aren't familiar, but really within the next few years, Canada is going to join the ranks of a super-aged nation. These are countries like Japan, where the majority of the population, or at least a quarter of the population, are age 65 and older. So when it comes to caring for this population, the Conference Board of Canada really suggests that by 2023, we're going to need almost 200,000 new beds. So that's nearly double the amount of beds available in 2016. And so by 2035, we're going to continuously need this at a higher rate, so almost 400. 50,000 new beds to meet those needs. And so currently we're not able to meet this need as is, but with the growing demand, it's going to become even more clear that things need to change because we just won't be able to meet their needs. There's simply just not enough support available to everyone who needs home 
care in their own homes or simply in long-term care settings like long-term care homes. And so in Ontario alone, there's over 14,000 people already on wait lists and over 39 of those are on wait lists for long-term care homes. So many of these people just cannot reside in their own homes. So they end up in hospital care systems. And that's really where we're seeing what's known as ALC rates. So these are patients who we deem alternative levels of care. And so these patients are occupying 13.6% of Ontario's health or hospital beds. Wow. So due to the overcrowding in hospitals, the wait lists just become even more. So we kind of are seeing this really rapid cycle. And so really we're focusing too much care on long-term care beds when there's really an opportunity for many of those people to go into their own homes. We'll get into that proposition, Christina, which of course is at the center of your work with Ashley in the essay. But before we do, I I want to talk a bit about balance between facility-based care and and home-based care, which you referred to in your answer. Canadian governments, including Ontario's, are scrambling to increase the supply of facilities and beds to meet current and future demand. But other jurisdictions have opted for a, a different balance between the two, that is between facilities-based care and home-based care. Let me ask you a two-part question. First, why do you think Canada has tended towards facilities-based care? And second, talk about the international evidence from those jurisdictions that have instead prioritized home-based care. I mean, to start, you're absolutely correct. Uh, When we think about the histories of institutionalization within Canadian culture, they really run deep, uh, where the default has always been an admission to a an LTC long-term care home, rather than enabling someone to age in the right place by providing more of those wraparound supports so that they can age in their own homes or their communities, right? And so when we think about that solitary focus on uh, the delivery of long-term care services within long-term care homes specifically, we see more and more promises of that kind of in recent years. So things like the promises to build more beds, right? When we hear, for example, the Ontario government elected on the promise to build or redevelop a total of 60,000 long-term care beds by 2028, those promises are are what we're hearing when when it comes to the solution to our our crisis here, when we think about ALC, when we think about wait lists for long-term care and for home care. But when we think about it in reality, Not all adults with the complex care needs require the level of care that's provided in long-term care homes. So, in fact, when we think we look to CHI-HI, the Canadian Institute of Health Information, they say that about 10% of older adults who are admitted to long-term care could actually have remained in their own homes if they had access to adequate support thinking about home care. And so there's a disconnect between kind of what we're doing and what is happening in the world. So I think mm. by and large, if, if we continue to kind of press forward and do what we've always been doing, that's not going to work. It's unsustainable, it's undesirable, to be honest, uh, especially as um, there's a growing recognition for the need for that more balanced approach between long-term care or care in long-term care homes and care in home and communities. And so if we really focus in on that preference of Canadians to age in their own homes, what we'll start to, I think, do better by older Canadians, do better by our healthcare systems. And so thinking about that and 
that goal, if we hold that goal in, at the fore, if we want to do better, I think it's wise to look at jurisdictions that are doing better. And so in, uh, in our work, we turn to countries like the U.S. and Denmark that have these innovations that I think Canada as a whole should be paying attention to. So in Denmark, which has been uh, kind of championing this aging in place initiative since the late 80s, they now allocate about 40% of their overall healthcare spending to long-term care services. And so that translates to about two times of their, their percentage of their GDP when we, when we compare it to what Canada spends on long-term care. Hmm. And that really translates into an almost non-existent ALC rate. They're at about 1%, where Canada, or in particularly Ontario, is about 13 14%. So by having that strong emphasis on providing that continuum of long-term care services beyond long-term care homes, they are able to support patients to be discharged from hospitals more quickly, to be to return to their homes rather than waiting for care in a long-term care home. And so they've actually closed a, a number of their, their long-term care home beds over, over the years. So that's a country that we can really turn to. And in the U.S., the program for all-inclusive care for the elders, their PACE program <laughs> is a mouthful, is a great example of what this more intensive and more integrated long-term care model could look like, like that we're proposing in our report uh, or our essay or proposal, whatever you want to call it. And so that model really supports over 50,000 long-term care eligible folks to across the country, across the U.S., to live safely in their own homes through the support of these programs. So I mean, it really kind of gives us a model that we can really build from and adapt to our Canadian context. So when we think about kind of these examples that are ready-made, that are in place, it doesn't really seem so far-fetched or unrealistic mm. to do things a bit differently when we think about the provision of long-term care services uh, writ large uh, here in Canada. ton of insight in those answers from, from both of you. I'm going to ask in a minute for you to talk about the research on outcomes or even personal preferences when it comes to the balance between long-term care facilities and, and home-based care. But before we do, I just want to ask you to underscore two points that that you made. The first, uh, Christina, was that there are estimates that as, as many as 13% of those in hospital beds could effectively be in some type of alternative care arrangement. Maybe just have you elaborate a bit on the kind of cost and consequences, not just for the system, of course, but for the individuals themselves. And then Ashley, you said that as many as 10% of those in long-term care arrangements presently, institutional ones, could, with proper supports, be better served in their homes. So in effect, whether they're in hospitals or they're in long-term care facilities, we have pretty considerable numbers of people where there is this sort of suboptimal outcome for them and the system. Why don't why don't I just have you elaborate on, on, on those two? What strike me is really key numbers in favor of moving in the direction that that the essay outlines. Yeah. So to start, I guess of the forty five hundred ALC patients are these patients who are deemed that needing alternative levels of care, but not necessarily needing the hospital care that they're provided. 
Them occupying 13.6% of Ontario hospital beds is a really staggering number, as you said, right? And it's overcrowding our hospitals. I think we constantly hear on the news about wait times, how long people have been waiting, cannot access the care they need. And so they say that Ontarians are really waiting around 17.9 hours on average to be admitted to an inpatient bed from an emergency department. And so having these beds or these limited beds occupied by people who don't necessarily need them is just creating this additional delay to things such as elective surgeries. And we were already burdened post the COVID-19 pandemic, where a lot of these surgeries were not taking place to accommodate the care of some of these COVID-19 patients. So I think, again, just to restate these effects on long-term care and, and not addressing long-term care as a continuum of care and what it is in Ontario is just creating this domino effect where we're now seeing this problem in hospitals and other um, aspects of care, not necessarily just related to older adults. To build on that, when we think about wait lists, right? If if we've got 10% of people in long-term care homes who don't necessarily need that level of care, and we know that there are thousands of people waiting to get into a long-term care home who do need that level of care. If we're better able to support folks within their own homes with the wraparound supports, whether it's Meals on Wheels, whether it's paramedicine, remote monitoring, that opens up the beds in long-term care for the people who truly need that level of care. So we reprioritize our focus on institutional care to community care and it's and then it's a better match between the level of care that people need and want and what we're providing them and what's accessible to them. And then we see that trickle effect back into hospitals, people waiting for ALC. We see that it, it's really, as Christina said, that domino effect if we're providing the right care in the right place. What does the research tell us about outcomes or personal preferences? Do, do we have a sense of whether all things being equal, it's generally better to keep people in their homes? Well, I think first and foremost, is that's where people want to be. So the National Institute on Aging, primarily where Ashley's housed and I'm an associate fellow, there's research is showing that 100% of people would prefer to age in their own homes and communities. That's pretty compelling. Right. <laughs> and so I think if we think about this, right, like why, why do these people want to age in their own homes, right? It's it's their sense of independence. It's their comfort. It's their familiarity. It's where they're familiar. It's where their families are. And so all that in turn has like psychological benefits as well, right? So people are reducing stress, anxiety, and certain health outcomes may also be better, right? So thinking of some of those aspects, I think the answer is pretty clear, as you said. But even going back to Ashley's point around the PACE program in the States, it's possible, right? Their programs show that after three years, 85% of people were able to age in their own homes. So why not let people get the care where they want it? Sign up for the Hub's free weekly newsletter and receive our best analysis and insights on the big issues and ideas transforming our world. Each Saturday morning, we will send you a compilation of our most interesting and thought-provoking analysis and commentary along with original news reporting on the people and events driving the public conversation. You can grab the Hub's complimentary weekly newsletter right now by becoming a free Hub member. Do that at www.thehub.ca. Again, www.thehub.ca. Grab your free email newsletter and membership. Act now. 
it leads to the inevitable question. What's your specific proposal? What would need to happen to rebalance Canada's mix between facilities-based care and home care? Mm -hmm. The inevitable question, right? We've been dancing around it (laughs) a little bit, but I think what's most clear kind of by the different estimates and, and statistics that we've been throwing around is that the current path that we're on when it comes to the provision of long-term care services, it's not sustainable. And particularly in light of what we've learned around COVID and how that impacted older adults and especially folks living in long-term care homes, things have just, it's unsustainable and things have only gotten worse and despite our best efforts. So I think instead of doing more of the same, like I said, so that is throwing more money more spending at the issue, which is not necessarily enough or being allocated in the right places. And a good example of that is kind of that uh, promise to build 60,000 beds by 2028. And to date have only really managed to do about 2,000, just under 2,000 beds. So we're not on pace to hit that goal. So instead of doing more of the same uh, and, and focusing on that institutionalized care, that care in long-term care homes, I think we need to shake things up a bit and to to rethink it. So that's what our proposal is. It's proposing a a new way of doing things that really recognizes that continuum of long-term care services. So thinking about long-term care as more than just the care provided in a long-term care home. Thinking about community care, thinking about rehabilitation services, reablement services, uh, and what we can, can be doing to better align with people's preferences for aging in their homes and in their communities. So we've essentially proposed a virtual long-term care at home program. And the program itself would leverage existing infrastructure, so people's own beds in their own homes, alongside existing community-based care providers in a different way that offers folks who are eligible for long-term care home So people that are on the wait list or or are waiting in ALC beds or or what have you, it provides them the option to receive that long-term care home equivalent level of care within their own homes through the creation of an integrated, coordinated team of care providers. Uh, So the teams bring together key partners with certain expertise that are found in most of our Canadian communities. So if you think about programs by local community support agencies, so Meals on Wheels, for example. We think about home care service providers such as nursing, physiotherapy, PSW, and home-led care, occupational therapy. We think about leveraging our community paramedics. And by bringing folks together in these integrated teams, they work together to identify and provide that more robust, more flexible mix of services that enable more folks to live in their home, own homes for as long as possible. And people, I think, often like to hear kind of, what's the cost of this? What are the cost savings? When we're, we're throwing out billions of dollars in support of long-term care services. I think it's helpful to kind of talk a little bit about that. So what, what we're proposing, and in our, in our proposal, we, we focus in on Ontario as a case study for what we can be doing across the country. And we're proposing to use a small proportion of the investment that the the Ontario government has put forward to fund up to 10 of these virtual long-term care home demonstrations. And these programs could support around 150 clients with about $68,000 a year, which is similar to what would be 
the cost of providing care in a long-term care home. So mm. the 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 cost comparison there is is similar. And then for an initial, if we were going to do a pilot study for three years. And so in practice, this could be something that our Ontario health teams, the OHTs pick up because they are well positioned to do that. And so instead of reallocating that $60,000 to more of the same, reallocate it to providing care in our homes and providing that more integrated care. It's really that you can see the high impact, how more cost effective that would be and, and help to address that domino effect when we think about wait, wait times, when we think about challenges in, in, in the delivery of care. And I think above all else really aligns with what Canadians want, right? Mm-hmm. It, it aligns with that almost 100% of people who want to age in their own homes. So uh, to me, it feels pretty straightforward. But Yeah, and what, what I'm hearing you say is it involves leveraging pre-existing resources and capacities and effectively shifting financial resources from the construction of more long-term beds to strengthening the home care offering available to those who want to take it up. Christina, it leads to the question, what impediments do you see to such a transformation of Canada and Ontario's healthcare model? What, for instance, might be needed to happen with regards to human resources to move in such a direction? Yeah, so I think as Ashley and I have been alluding to this entire time, we really need to start thinking about doing things differently. And I think that's the number one impediment is our government seems to find comfort and we find comfort in doing the same things over. So we really do need this willingness to change. Going to your point around human resources, I think we really need to start training and educating healthcare professionals to equip them with the skills and knowledge necessary for home care and really to start developing and attracting people to the home care sector. So things like competitive wages, benefits, and really as Ashley pointed to, we really need these multidisciplinary care teams who can provide that comprehensive home-based care. So we need our physicians to work with our nurses, to work with our therapists, our social workers, and so forth. And with that emphasis on the paid healthcare professionals, we also need to not forget about our unpaid family caregivers who are really going to be taking on a lot of this work as well and who really are the backbone of home care systems. So statistics show that they save our healthcare system billions of dollars a year. And so along the same lines is really supporting them in those roles, teaching healthcare providers to consider family caregivers and their roles and how we can sustain that caregiver support, et cetera. But really what we also need is increase in home care funding, but the better allocation of our healthcare dollars. So thinking about how the Ontario government had announced back in 2022 that they would spend a billion dollars more over three years to home and community care. Well, when we think about the most recent budget, right, in 2023, there's only about $569 million for more home and community care in 2023-2024. So again, where are we allocating the money? How much money are we spending? And that really thinking about how investing in home care will save the healthcare system and other aspects of care. So I know money is, you know, more of the taboo topic or the unlimited resources that we can, but we really can't afford not to test some of these evidence-informed solutions right now that could finally stop some of this hallway medicine, weightless crisis that we're in. Final question. 
How optimistic are you that we'll start to see the Ontario government or other provinces move in the direction of rebalancing the mix between facilities-based care and home-based care to meet the needs of our country's aging population? I think we have to be optimistic because otherwise being in this line of business is... (laughs) point can be demoralizing, right? But but I think I am optimistic and I'm very optimistic. I like what I'm seeing in terms of different jurisdictions across the country starting to focus on providing small home care. So that's kind of taking up these more innovative models of providing person-centered and really meeting residents in long-term care homes where they're at in terms of how we're providing support. So I like just, I like seeing that across the country. And I think I think what we witnessed during COVID-19 and kind of the atrocities that happened throughout that the early days and, and continue to happen, I think that's really lit a fire under a lot of people in terms of advocacy and making change when we think of how we are supporting our older, our older generation. So I think we're at a really exciting time when it comes to changes. And, and I think... I am optimistic for the future and and the changes that are coming down the line for sure. Yeah. And echoing everything Ashley said, I don't think we would do what we did if we didn't have some degree of optimism. (laughs) We wouldn't be putting these solutions out there. But I think what we've highlighted is really by doing things the way we have, it's unsustainable. So whether it's optimism or, or force, I think we really can start seeing some changes happening. And the important evidence that you've brought to bear in your essay for this year's Hunter Prize and in today's conversation. Christina Coco Realis and Ashley Flanagan, thank you so much for joining us at Hub Dialogues. Thank you. Thank you, Sean. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family and subscribe wherever you get your audio online. We also appreciate your ratings and reviews. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar-Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening. <laughs>